This is Real Talk with Denver 7 and CPR News. This week, housing is a top concern among people living in Colorado. It's frustrating. We've had people on that wait list get displaced while they were on the wait list. It's also a hot topic for Denver's two mayoral candidates. Today, we have a real talk about their plans to combat our housing crisis and hear what some community members have to say. Welcome to Real Talk with Denver 7 and CPR News. I'm Colorado Public Radio's Nathan Heffel. And I'm Denver 7's Micah Smith. Each week in a partnership between Denver 7 and CPR, we will have a real talk about issues impacting underrepresented people across Colorado. And this week we're focusing on an issue that is impacting all of us across the metro and across our state. It's housing. But we're looking at it through the lens of Denver's two mayoral candidates. This week, Denver 7, CPR sister site Denver Right, and the Denver Post held a debate with Kelly Bruff and Mike Johnston. Housing was the first issue discussed between the candidates. Throughout this show, we're going to hear each candidate's thoughts on a couple housing issues and have expert opinions that go deeper into all of the issues. We begin with the first question from this week's debate. Denver's Building Permits Office has struggled greatly to catch up on serious backlogs that delay development, including for affordable housing projects. What two things could you do to bring that office up to expectations? You're going to hear first from Kelly Bruff, followed by Mike Johnston. There's two things I would do. Denver is significantly behind today. And the reason this is so critical is this not only costs money on those uh, apartments that are being built, but it costs money for Colorado Coalition for the Homeless, for Habitat for Humanity, for affordable housings we're trying to build in our city. I would bring in contractors. There's companies who can help us catch up and really get behind that backlog, which is overwhelming. The second thing I'd do is restructure the department. Today, it's very siloed. We have multiple departments from the Department of Forestry, the Building Code, the Planning Department, the Fire Department, the Transportation Department, all trying to coordinate this work. I'd make it one team with one person in charge of it, really focused on delivering customer service and making sure we get that housing done more efficiently and more cost-effectively. Mike, how would you respond? Yeah, I think the most important thing here that we see every day is we can't afford a Denver where Denverites can't afford to live. Right now, we know the very residents who are serving this city, the teachers, nurses, firefighters, servers, 80% of those folks can't afford to live in this city tonight. And that is a dramatic problem we have to solve. And we're making that problem worse by having a permitting process that is so slow that it drives up the cost of those units and it makes us wait longer and longer to get those units built. So that was one of the reasons why I helped build a coalition of organizations around the state to take on our first statewide ballot measure to take on affordable housing. That was Proposition 123, which passed last year. And a key part of that is not just putting $300 million a year each year into expanding more affordable housing. It's actually forcing cities and counties to move faster in the permitting process. So I would use those regulations to push to get a 90-day fast-track approval process in Denver for affordable units. So we know we can push those affordable projects to the front of the line. We can get them moving. We can get them built. We can get people housed in the units that they know they can afford and they can afford to stay in. Now we want to make clear our guests on today's show are not making endorsements for either candidate, but instead weighing in with their perspectives on the city and metro area's needs. We spoke with Jonathan Capelli from the Neighborhood Development Collaborative and Nola Miguel from the GES Coalition. We want to begin with you, Nola. With the GES Coalition, you work to preserve affordability, particularly in the Globeville, Alaria, Swansea neighborhood. Right. Tell us about the issues you've had for getting permits for affordable housing. 
So the GES coalition organized around uh, displacement in our neighborhoods. And um, one of the things, one of the solutions that we created is a community land trust called Tierra Colectiva. Um, and as part of that, we both preserve homes, so purchase homes that um, are already existing homes, rehab them, and then enter them in a land trust. And we also do new development. Um, in our in a most recent development that we're doing, which is a modular build, it's uh, five units, so five homes. Um, we had to wait over 18 months uh, through the permit process. Um, and that gets even more complicated when you're talking about modulars, because the timing is very, very important. When a modular unit comes, it's already built. It has appliances in it even. It, and we worked really hard to try to get the timing right. And our modular units came, and then we still had to wait an additional four months. And, and that was red tape that you had to wait through and things like that? Right, right. So it's, it's this comment process. You go back and forth you know, with the building department about different, different issues that might come up. A lot of times you have to, for instance, get a civil engineer back involved to, to respond to some comments, um, or it's fire. Uh, like Kelly Bruff mentioned, you right. know, the, all these different departments are doing different things, and they each have different comments. So yes, it's an extremely long process. And during that four months, when our units were sitting in an empty parking lot, they got broken into, we lost copper wiring and pipes, we got an appliance stolen and it had to take them all out. I mean, it, it, it just made it so much harder. And for a creative building alternative, like modular builds, there also has to be alternative pathways through the building department um, because it, it gets very confusing both for them and I think uh, you know, some, some approvals are at the state level, some are at the city level. Um, so one thing that Kelly Breff mentioned of having consolidating the different departments, I think, is really important. And having bringing contractors that could uh, kind of mo mobilize things like that. So with, with a new building alternative like a modular, could a contractor create a new process or a, an expedited process um, that could go through that? But yeah. one of the big things that we're really concerned about is how affordable um, development is fast-tracked or on a different track um, than all development. Absolutely. And Jonathan, I want you to jump in here. You work to bring equitable and sustainable development to communities across Colorado. What have you noticed in terms of building delays and the effect it can have? Building delays have a pretty large effect. I think Noel actually spoke pretty well to them. Um, uh, it just increased holding costs um, for the developer if they've you know acquired the land uh, and it also um, disrupts uh, sort of funding cycles because some certain types of funding especially for multifamily housing the largest source of funding is called the low-income housing tax credit LIHTC and uh, uh, so if you um, are really held up in the process uh, during permitting it can be hard to align when you're applying for funds when you get the funds and when you actually build and it just increases these holding costs there's some new state legislation that gets uh, rid of essentially taxes for um, uh, housing providers that are providing homeownership opportunities. So if you're holding on the land for five years, you're not paying taxes, but it's just for homeownership. So for multifamily, it's just can be extremely expensive. And, and Nola, I, I want to talk about displacement. It is a big concern. And then I'm hearing from Jonathan that there's these, uh, you know, extreme lengths of time to get housing that's sitting and waiting and ready to go. How do you bridge that gap between people who need homes, the homes are sitting there, but you just can't get into them. Does that make sense? Definitely. Um, and it's frustrating, especially because we have, you know, a wait list of folks that have been displaced. We've had people on that wait list get displaced while they were on the wait list, 
um, having to move to Thornton and then come back once the home is eventually available. Um, so, but that's just the people that are on the waitlist ready to go, not talking about the overall displacement that's happening. Right. But it goes back to the equity issue for me of um, affordable projects, especially those that are having the experience of involuntary displacement, right. that um, those types of projects should be prioritized in some way. Um, because of the urgency and because of the what Jonathan's talking about of when affordable housers are have all these additional things going and we don't have a, a profit gap where we can say oh well it's you know we have all this extra money or we can just charge more for the homes we, sure. can, we can't you know right. um, so it's it's a very different process than a for-profit developers that was Nola Miguel of the GES coalition in Denver Jonathan Capelli is with the Neighborhood Development Collaborative, and we'll hear more from them later in the show. This real talk on housing in Denver continues with a look at permanent supportive housing next. Both mayoral candidates support this model, but there's some questions about how to ensure it can be supported citywide. This is Real Talk with Denver 7 and CPR News. Welcome back to Real Talk with Denver 7 and CPR News. I'm Denver 7's Micah Smith. And I'm Colorado Public Radio's Nathan Heffel. Today we're having a real talk about housing in the metro and how each Denver mayoral candidate plans to combat our housing crisis. We want to shift this real talk to permanent supportive housing now. Permanent supportive housing is a model that combines affordable housing with voluntary support services to help those who experience chronic homelessness. In our mayoral debate this week, we asked both Kelly Bruff and Mike Johnston about this. Both candidates support this model, but we asked them how they will guarantee supportive housing will be in every district and how they will deal with any pushback. Take a listen to what they had to say. I think that one of the things we know is that if we are going to be able to make the city more affordable, we have to build more affordable units. I've committed a, a vision to build 25,000 units that are permanently affordable over the next eight years. And that would allow people who live in those units to not have to pay more than 30% of what they make to rent. And so if you're a teacher making $40,000 a year, you don't have to pay more than $1,000 a month. And you don't have to worry your rent's going to get jacked up each month because your rent doesn't go up unless your income goes up. And that allows us to bring density and to bring supportive housing around the city. I think we do want to focus on the places where we have access to public transit. We have access to light rail or to buses so we can have uh, more dense housing that don't always require everyone to have a car because they have an easy and convenient way to get to work. So I think we want to bring affordable housing to all of the regions of Denver, but we also want to prioritize those places that have the best access to transit as places where we can build the greatest density. And that's what I would work with neighborhoods to do. Kelly? Yeah, to make a city work, we have to have a range of housing throughout our city. Uh, and the most important decision the next mayor can make is work with city council on our land use. And this is where we have to build density, where we've already made investments in our transit system, but our major bus routes. And this isn't just for affordability. This is also for our environment, for transportation reasons, air quality reasons, water usage. So you'll see my administration really focus on building that more affordable housing, not just rent, but for sale as well throughout our city in every neighborhood so that we're building where we should have density, but we're also building so our kids can access schools they never could have accessed. Families can own homes in neighborhoods they never could have afforded. And I will look at publicly owned land to be able to deliver that product so it's more, to, more affordable, like a land bank or a land trust, and it will be throughout our city. We wanted to hear more on this from Nola Miguel of GES Coalition. But first, we spoke to outgoing Denver City Council member Robin Kanich for this real talk. 
Robin, you've spent a lot of time on city council dealing with permanent supportive housing. Talk to me about the success that you've seen with this style of housing. This is an apartment that someone pays only what they can afford in rent, and it is proving more than 80% successful, not just one year after they are placed into housing, but two and three years after they're placed into housing, keeping people housed, giving them the services they need, and it is proving really successful for communities as well, far more successful than even just emergency services or the other things we think of as short-term solutions to housing. And it is the key to the answer to homelessness. And it's something these candidates need to focus more on than they did in their answers in that debate last night. And, and Nola, I understand you've maybe expressed some concerns about supportive housing. Um, can you kind of explain what those are, your concerns? Not concerns in the sense of not wanting it. I think just ensuring that it is distributed throughout the city, um, for one. And um, one thing that um, neighborhoods that are facing displacement um, really want to see is that the, that, that supportive housing also um, addresses folks in the neighborhood that are looking for housing. Um, and, and so with Councilman Kanish, we worked on the prioritization policy that does um, you know, have priority for a certain amount of units within a, a new development um, that could be supportive housing or other types of affordable housing. Um, so the concerns are more, the dyna dynamics are maybe just a little bit different in, in particular neighborhoods and yeah. that the, the equity issues within Denver and the history of, of redlining and segregation and the, the history of housing policy is very important to acknowledge as we're building out and moving forward with housing in the city now. So it's not just that top level, it goes deep in, into right. those. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Robin, you mentioned that the candidates should have talked more about supportive housing. What was it that you were looking to hear? I think they wanted to tell us the story of their whole housing plan and jump to teachers and home ownership. But the truth is they both have a lot of passion about solving homelessness. And to do that, they're gonna need more than just to talk about encampments and what they do with street homelessness. They are going to need to tell us how they are going to ramp up their investment in the housing for those exiting homelessness. That requires um, deep subsidy. It requires um, a way to build on the foundation. Denver taxpayers have really been generous. We have two funding streams for affordable housing and reducing homelessness that are gonna build 2,500 new homes for those leaving homelessness in cooperation with the state and other funders, but they are going to need to meet the promises that they have given these voters, they are going to need to triple or quadruple the number of homes. And they gave us none of the specifics for that. Now, this is not something that is impossible, but it's something that will need new resources beyond the specifics they've given us. And so I think they want to do this. I think they have committed that they are supportive of this model, but they have more talked about their bigger picture housing plans than they have this piece of housing that they will need to meet their homelessness goals. You're looking for the how. Exactly. How are we do this? Exactly. Yeah, and Nola, we also heard Kelly Bruff mention land trusts. Your group focuses on community land trusts. How can you, can you explain how they work? Sure. It, there's a lot of those types of terms being thrown around, right? So there's yeah. community land trusts, there's land trusts, there's land banking, she mentioned as well. Yep. Um, and I've heard both candidates bring up community land trusts, and we've asked them ourselves in, in forums that we've posted questions about community land trusts. Um, the community in the community land trust is really important because, especially for a neighborhood like Lobel or Swansea, where the idea is to have 
control and to steward that land in perpetuity. Um, not all land trusts necessarily have that community control component, um, but for Global Air Swansea, that's, what, that's one of the reasons we really liked the community land trust tool. But the basic of it is the separation between the land and the, the buildings or the, or the homes on, on top of the land. And um, in a traditional home ownership community land trust, the, the home is owned by the homeowner and the land is owned collectively by the community or the nonprofit stru structure, however that may work in a land trust. There's also options of doing a land trust type model with the city, where the city owns the land. And then um, they could look for a developer to develop or run the building. Um, so there's a lot of different ways that the land trust structure can be used as a tool. And um, for us, it's very important, those distinctions. Um, because a community land trust, especially in a neighborhood like Global Area Swansea, is, is bringing back the control that we haven't had for so long. And, and so it's a tool for affordable, permanent affordable housing, um, but also for a way to control the development that's happening in the neighborhood and to have an active role in that. That was Nola Miguel of the GES Coalition in Denver. We also heard from outgoing Denver City Council member Robin Kanich. Denver's housing boom has received a lot of interest from developers outside of the state looking to cash in here. But should the city embrace that? Voters made their voice heard loud and clear. We hear from our experts next. This is Real Talk with Denver 7 and CPR News. Welcome back to Real Talk with Denver 7 and CPR News. Today we're having a real talk about housing in the metro and how Denver's two mayoral candidates plan to fix the housing crisis. We want to end this real talk with a look at the role of the private sector in Denver. You may remember back in November, Denver voters overwhelmingly rejected a plan to allow a private investor to redevelop the Park Hill Golf Course. What to do with the Park Hill Golf Course land will certainly be something Denver's new mayor will have to look at. So let's welcome all of our guests back for one last chat about housing in the metro. Uh, first, Jonathan, should the private sector help solve our housing crisis? And if so, how? Uh, 100% they should. Um, you know, when we think about uh, you know, how much housing is produced in any given year, uh, on the uh, affordable side, Denver has historically produced between 600 and 1,000 units. Of affordable uh, homes every year. I think there's 1,600 um, approximately slated in the uh, the new host plan. Uh, there, are, you know, significantly more of that that's happening in it was just the market. And so when you see Colorado or Denver becoming less and less affordable, it's you know because these market rate units are sort of proliferating. The way you address that is by harnessing the market to um, exact some affordability in some of these new units. So expanding uh, housing affordability initiative, the inclusionary housing ordinance is a big part of that, where between um, uh, 8 and 15% of all new market rate units are uh, over 10 unit development size projects um, are supposed to be affordable. Uh, it remains to be seen um, how many developers sort of opt out and, uh, and pay a fee instead, um, which is something that the state uh, legislature requires that you sort of offer this out. But in theory, uh, all this new market rate development will create new affordable housing development. So that's a, a, a big part of it. We also need to uh, be cautious about you know, corporate ownership um, and uh, sort of these large uh, institutions, corporate institutions are coming in and buying up large swaths of single family homes throughout the city. A study in West Denver showed that a significant percentage of units 
that um, were purchased um, were purchased by these these yeah. institutional investors. Um, and so, how do you? I think that the next mayor is going to have to really tackle that head on. Um, we we can harness um, the market on the development side, but on the acquisition side, um, if they're the primary mover in all these in, in these neighborhoods, then we're just going to lose affordable homes at a rate faster than we can afford. Robin, we just have a few minutes left, but is there anything else you'd like to add, uh, maybe to what Jonathan said, or any different thoughts? Yeah, we've lost 28,000 apartments that were privately owned to, they used to be available to those earning less than, let's say, forty, fifty thousand dollars $50,000 a year, and they flipped into luxury homes, uh, apartments. And so that tells us that the private market, when there are no limits on what they can charge for rent, is going to have a limited role in solving our affordability crisis. The legislature passed on giving local governments an ability to kind of limit the amount of increase in a rent in one year. And that's going to be challenging for local governments. Our constituents expect us mm -hmm. to help uh, stop exorbitant rent increases, and we can't. So that conversation, I think, is going to continue to come up. The other thing is community benefits agreements. This is something the GES Coalition has done. Those tools to say, let's negotiate. If you want new uh, benefits from the city, subsidies, you want to make a deal with the city for some special exceptions to rules, let's talk about the equity you can provide for the community to prevent displacement and affordability. Those community benefits agreements are one way to mitigate some of those impacts. Those tools are important. Yeah, and Nola, quick thoughts as we wrap up. You're shaking your head a lot with this. <laughs> what are your final thoughts, quickly? I mean, real quickly, the market is not providing what we need right now, right? And so we need the public sector to step up in a significant way that it hasn't been. It's starting to over the last five years. You know, we have an affordable housing fund in Denver, but we don't have enough tools and enough things to really um, have more publicly owned, run um, housing that is, not, that is not part of speculation. Um, another thing that we really need is, is increase in renters' rights. Um, that's something that is needed to balance out a lot of the, the increases in rent and things that we're seeing for conditions for, for renters. And having organized renters is something that um, can really help to balance that out. Yeah. Yeah. Nola, Rob, and Jonathan, thank you so much for joining us for this very important conversation. Robin Kanich has served on Denver City Council since 2011. Jonathan Capelli is with the Neighborhood Development Collaborative. And Nola Miguel is from the GES Coalition. And that's this week's episode of Real Talk with Denver 7 and CPR News. Every week, we'll be having a real talk on issues that impact Coloradans who are often overlooked. You can find all of our shows on denver7.com slash realtalk or at cpr.org slash realtalk. Have a great day.